the kids on Sunday. So thank you, Nadia, for being so brave. Uh, last week, we began a new series. And in this series, we're looking at an Old Testament book, the book of Esther. And in this story, uh, if you have, are you, if you're familiar with it, or as you become familiar with it, you'll recognize that many of the problems that we experience in this world, things like corruption and genocide and misogyny and so on and so forth, they're experienced in this story too. And they're experienced in many of the stories of the Bible. The Bible is very honest about the way that the world works, the way that men and women function, and the challenges, the problems, the pain and suffering that we bring into our, one another's lives. What's interesting about the book of Esther which is unlike any other book in the Bible, is that in the midst of all of these problems, God is never mentioned. And therefore, this book, you might say, is, is, is similar to our reality as any other, because we live in a world with a lot of problems, and, uh, and oftentimes, God is never part of that discussion. Uh, if he is, maybe he's in the background. And therefore, Esther is a kind of bridge book. I think. And even this experience that we're having here is kind of a bridge between two different worlds, between the real and the ideal, between earth and heaven. And so as we look at this particular book, we have an opportunity to look for God in it. He doesn't uh, appear in the most obvious ways. He doesn't walk into the room. But as you read this book, and the reason it's in the Bible is because the hiddenness of God is everywhere. That things happen not by chance, that, uh, that he is at work in all and every little detail, governing, superintending, that he act, is actively involved, he knows our lives, and he is at work for good in them. And so let me just give a little bit of a recap, because this book is, in some sense, fairly simple, but there's lots of twists and turns. And so where we're at right now is in the book of Esther, uh, it is primarily a story about a young Jewish woman who, through a series of events, suddenly finds herself elevated to be the queen, to be the queen of, of Persia. And she's brought to this place to save her people. And we're at the place in the story where King Xerxes, who is the, the king, uh, uh, he has just disposed, disposed uh, of his queen, Queen Vashti because she stood up to him in a very public way, because she refused to be paraded. And so he gets rid of her, and now he's looking for a new queen. And so let's go ahead and let's listen uh, to uh, chapter 2, selected verses in chapter 2. I'm going to actually read it from here, because I think my translation is slightly different. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided... He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Higai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, 
the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive when Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Higai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Higai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided with her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bixana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who, guaranteed the door, who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told King Esther, Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. And this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. This is God's word. Uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look at this passage, that we would bring ourselves to it, that we would allow you to speak through it. Uh, Lord, uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's do a little something different here at Storefront. You know, we're a Presbyterian church, so we keep it pretty close to the best. But I want to enter into a little bit of group discussion here. How was your week? I'd love to hear some interaction. Tell me a good thing that happened to you this week. Shout it out. Betty. Betty. 
Betty had surgery, if you couldn't hear, or Betty had to go to the dentist. Somebody came with her and stayed with her for three hours at the dentist. That is good. Great thing. Thank you for sharing. One more. A good thing that happened, Jane. People came over for her neighborhood groups, and neighborhood groups are weekly groups that we get together, and we, we have meaningful discussion around passages like this. So people came over for neighborhood groups. Great. Two great things, both true. Uh, what happened this week that was not so good? What was a challenging thing that happened for you this week? Two days of rain. Fair. Unless you're a plant. <laughs> you in traffic? Thank you. One more. Illness, basic. Thank you. So what do we see here? There's, there are truly good things and truly troubling things, difficult things that happen in our lives. And, uh, and yet in the midst of them, and let's, let me just say, just to protect all of us, we know that rain is difficult and traffic is difficult. We also know that there's far more complicated things that maybe it's not appropriate to say that are happening in our lives, both are true. And yet, Christians believe that God is at work in the midst of them. That God is at work, not just in the good things, but even in the difficult things, even in the challenging things, the things that trouble our souls. Christians believe that God is at work in them, governing them, superintending them, transforming them even for good. And so today, as we look at this passage, I'd like us just to, to think about how we think about our lives, how we think about the world, and how we remember. Let's think about remembering God. Now, memory is a funny thing. Memory, some have said, is sort of the heartbeat of our lives. It keeps us alive in some sense. It determines how we move about the day. And yet we all know we have incredibly short memories. We have incredibly fickle memories. But when, we, when one can believe that God is actively at work in your life, when one believes in what's called the providence of God, then that can transform the way that you think about the past, the way you live in the present, and how you move into the future. St. Augustine, who was an African bishop in the 5th century, said very famously, trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to God's providence. And so with that in mind, I'd like to just take that framework for us and think through this passage, okay? So let's trust the past. Uh, as we think about this story, let's trust the past to God's mercy, trust the present to God's love, and trust the future to God's providence. So first, trust the past to God's mercy. You know, um, in seminary, you have to learn uh, a few different languages. One of them is Hebrew. And one of the first things you recognize right away is that you don't read Hebrew from right to left or from left to right. You read it from right to left. You read it from back to front. And scholars have often commented 
That's often the way that you, we, you learn the language of providence, that you understand the way that God works by going from back to front, by going back to the past. And in some sense, that's an opportunity for us to do that here. And we see that in this particular verse, uh, verse uh, at, in chapter 2, in verse 1 and 2. Uh, in verse 1 and 2, uh, it begins with a problem, and this is a problem from the past. And this is a problem that I would say is, in some sense, vexes King Xerxes. Uh, it, it bothers him. It's, it's um, at work in him. Uh, it's working on him. A problem that Xerxes has, uh, it's a problem that he cannot seem to forget. And what is that? It says, the memory of Vashti and what she had done. And because of his memory, I think, we're able to see God's mercy at work in three ways. Or in three, yeah, three ways. We can see God's work at, at work in him. We can, or excuse me, we can see God's mercy at work in him, God's mercy at work in Vashti and her story, but also maybe in, in us too. Um, first, at work in him. It's kind of hard for us to see there in the passage, but there's a time difference between chapters one and chapters two. And we can we see that further in the book that you can look at the, the particular dates and begin to line things up historically. But between chapters one, in which Vashti was deposed or disposed, and chapters two, it's supposed to be about four years since these two events. And so when it says that Xerxes comes home and he's furious, he's not furious with Vashti. What the scholars say is that he's furious because he's just led a failed attempt to, uh, to take over Greece. And he's come back and he's a defeated man. He is politically vulnerable. He's questioning the decisions that he's made. He's questioning maybe the system in that he's in. And this is my interpretation. He's questioning the things that he's in and he's remembering how he got there. And so he remembers Vashti and what she had done. Um, and one of the things about memory, of course, and I think this is what's taking place with his memory of her, is that we never know the value of something until it becomes a memory. Now, Vashti and Xerxes, you never want to say that they had a kind of romantic relationship, that there was true love there. I don't think that was the case at all. But what does he remember about her? The value of Vashti, I think, for Xerxes is that she did what he could not do. She stood up and she said no. Remember in the story that he had a big party and all of his nobles, all of his advisors were there, probably the exact same community of, of people that encouraged him to go to war. And though he is this king that has 127 provinces and he sits on the throne, he has all of this power, the first chapter reveals that he's actually a fairly weak king. He listens to his counsels more than to his own conscience. And so the value of Vashti is she did what he couldn't do. She stood up. She said no. And in the mercy of God, in the story of Xerxes is this, is that he now begins to look upon his memory and his mistakes and to say, I may not, and we see a hint that he may not make that same mistake again with Esther. Of course, he doesn't know Esther yet. I'm jumping ahead. So God's at work in his memory, and that 
particular way. She said no, and the mercy of God is that by working through his memory, he won't make that same mistake twice. Foreshadowing. Now, of course, we all make all kinds of mistakes, and probably the best things, the way that we grow the most, right, is by learning from our mistakes. And we, we remember those things, we're thankful for those things, but if your life is anything like mine, then there are so many more mistakes that you never remember, that you never actually learn from, that we never actually learn from. And so God is at work in a miraculous way here within uh, uh, Xerxes. And he's not a, a very sympathetic character. But through the mercy of God, that begins to change. So when we look to the past, we can see God's mercy at work in him. We can also see it at work in the story of Vashti. Xerxes remembers Vashti because she stood knowing that she would be knocked down. She, she stood knowing that she was ultimately just another object in his kingdom, just another harem girl. So she stands at long last and says no to the objectification of her life. Why? What brought her to that place? Perhaps the hidden hand of God. But she stood up knowing she'd be knocked down. And she's banished, and most likely she was executed. And while we as modern people tend to think, well, the mercy of God works in this way, that not only would Vashti be saved, but she would be remain in the palace amongst luxury and comfort. And that is the expression of mercy in her life. But that's not true to the narrative of the Bible. It's not true to the reality of the Bible. The Bible creates a, a, a world in which there are things worth dying for. That's not a sentiment necessarily in our culture, right? To thrive is to survive and to live a life of comfort. But in the Bible, there are things worth dying for. And for reasons we don't fully understand, it's not shown here in the text. She stands up in order to be knocked down, or knowing, I should say, she'll be knocked down. She'll be crushed. And so what I'd like to suggest is that God's mercy is that in her standing, the saving grace would be that her story would never be forgotten. That God takes this story and takes her name and has it live throughout the centuries. Her story is not forgotten. Her story, her standing was not in vain. Her story would be told. It would be remembered. And that maybe, perhaps, she wouldn't be the last woman to stand. Unlike other women in the citadel, the story of her standing, uh, excuse me, uh, we may ask, why is this happening to her or what? Why do things like this happen to me? And God's answer may very well be to you and I and to the Vashus of the world, my child, stand and I will work with you in order to work through you for the good of the lives of others. I hope that doesn't sound like cold comfort. But in a world which gives tremendous discomfort, there is redemption there. So there's mercy as we look to the past for him, for her, but maybe for you and I too, because there is 
Maybe we don't have an Xerxes in our lives, but maybe you do. Maybe there is somebody who has looked at you as an object in their kingdom and a tool to be used, that they haven't taken your story as one that has been birthed by God from out of nothing, that you've been used, manipulated, humiliated, so on and so forth. Uh, and what this teaches us is that God, this is what one commentator says, is that God can use even evil men. David Guzik, who I, is a commentator, I really appreciate, he says this, he says, God allowed this wicked action of man to fulfill a purpose in his greater plan. And therefore, we too find assurance in the truth that no other person, no matter how evil they are, can defeat God's plan for our lives. No matter what they have done to us, or will do to us. And so as you look into the past and you have these kinds of figures in your life, God can work through them. God can overcome them. God can work through that pain. God can work through that memory. And if you have those kinds of figure, people in your future, he will work through them too. Second, trust the present. The life you're living now to God's love. Now, at long last, enter Esther. Now, the general principle in biblical language is that it's, it's written, biblical authors tend to understate things. And so when it says that, that Esther was, uh, what does it say, uh, lovely and beautiful, then we know that she was extraordinarily beautiful. That she was the kind of person that women wanted to be and men wanted to be with when it came to the cultural idols or or or, or uh, what would you say when it came to the kind of the standard of feminine beauty esther was was her and so because of that when esther comes into the story immediately she has favor and because of her physical attributes she's brought into the king's presence and by the end of the chapter, together with her uncle Mordecai, they help save Xerxes' life. Now that is the basic story. It's also the Disney version of that story. But the biblical telling of the story is just much more akin to what you might see in the international news. In 2014, um, in Nigeria, a terrorist group kidnapped 276 teenage girls from their school. And this event shocked the world, and it devastated the nation. And so when we read in the Bible that they gathered women from all over, it is not that different than what Boko Haram did in Nigeria. They devastated families. I would imagine that some of those women that were taken there never saw their families again, which is what happened in Boko, Boko with this, I don't even want to say their name, right? Which, which is what happened with this uh, terrorist act uh, to these teenage girls in Nigeria. And there was a recent documentary about them. I think it came out in 2018. But there was a quote from that documentary that said this, most families have been touched by Boko Haram. Nobody, in talking about in Nigeria, nobody is immune from it. It's so widespread, there's fear. But there is also an element of commonality that if it hasn't happened to them, 
then it is only by the grace of God. I think it's safe to say that that feeling is understandable. But pro the providence of God is such that the grace of God, that term, the grace of God, is not just used for people who the good things happen to, but that God is even at work in these horrible things. And so when we think about this story, we should recognize that Esther is trafficked for the pleasure of others. And there is a system in place in which both men and women, this story is filled with eunuchs, both men and women are treated as less than human. But God's grace isn't just for those who are spared, it's for those who were not spared. God's love is present with them too. And so as Esther moves throughout this system, as she makes survival-based decisions, the presence of God is right there with her. One of the ways that we see that is that his love is present, that his love is there in the thick of it, is in the presence of Mordecai. And Mordecai is her uncle, kind of. He's like an older cousin who, when they were taken uh, into exile, when the Jewish people were taken into exile, he adopted her. He took her as his own. He raised her from as a young child and treated her as his, as his daughter. And so Esther had favor in Xerxes' court because she was beautiful, but we're to see that there is a, there is a love that is even more, uh, how would I say that? But there is a love even greater than being favored in your culture. And that's a familial love. Mordecai adopted her, and he's bound to her, and he's committed to her through everything. And Mordecai is a picture of the love of God. Now, when we think about the way that the supernatural works in our lives, we tend to think about it in two different religious views. One is karma, and one is what I'll say covenant, commitment. A familial love. And so karma uh, is what you put into the world comes back to you. Uh, I'll bring good deeds into the world, good things through an impossible life. Uh, excuse me. Uh, I, if, you bring, if you bring good deeds into the world, good things will be brought back to you. This comes through a force, a kind of supernatural activity, an impersonal life force in which as you Bring, as you put positivity into the world, positivity comes back to you. And if you put negativity into the world, negativity comes back to you. Now, if you're a Swifty, and I think there's a few Swifties in this, this community, that's Taylor Swift fans for everybody else. If you're a Swifty, then probably the lyrics of her most, I don't know if it's her most recent song, I'm looking at Tana, uh, are running through your head. And I'm not going to go through those lyrics. But what she's describing in there is a world where there's more to life, uh, more to our well-being than just simply meets the eye. There's a power at work in the world. And it's a beautiful uh, uh, power. It's an empowering power. Um, and she is in the song, I think, reflecting on the fact that though she too has been a part of an industry that profits off of her physical appearance, she has also been, uh, she's also had some pretty public, I think, business manipulations and so on and so forth that she's triumphed over. And she, in this song, sort of attests that she has, 
she's still there. She's still, she's still at work because she's put more good into the world than not. Or I should say, maybe she's not fallen prey to the same kind of cultural practices that the rest of that industry has fallen prey to. But there's another way to think about karma. And I think as a Christian, we should be careful just to outright reject this idea of karma. And I think uh, Bono was actually really helpful in this. Uh, and Bono, who was, and I'm, I'm stopping talking about Taylor, and I'm not trying to compare the two. Bono says this about uh, karma and uh, and what how he describes covenant, and he uses the language of grace. He says this, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in physics and physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. As you reap, so will you sow. To end up all that, as you reap, so will you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts. If you like the consequence, if you like the consequences of your actions, which in my case is, uh, sorry, I, I messed up this quote here. Uh, he says, uh, love interrupts. That's very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. But that's between me and God. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my final judge. I, it doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. So what's he saying? He's saying that it may be true that there is that the good you put out into the world comes back to you. But he's basically saying no person has enough good to, to close the gap between them and God. Not even Bono. And what does he need? He needs an interruption in that. He needs a break. He needs a new idea, a new, new, uh, a new way. And of course, that is the way of the cross, and that's the way of the covenant. Uh, and covenant is part of a. It's the. It's the. It's the language of the family of God. It's the language as I'm committed to you no matter who you are or what you've done, that you're mine. And therefore, it's right to think about God the way that Mordecai functions in this particular passage. That he is on the one hand pacing outside the palace because he's so uh, passionate about what is taking place in the life of Esther. But he doesn't stop there. He breaks through the palace, if you will, and he's at work in the palace, too, in a supernatural way. I am at work. I'm committed to you, even when your situations seem impossible. Even when you're in a situation in which it's completely impossible for you to keep your side of the street clean. 
to quote the song Karma. And so in scripture, when we think about uh, the, the relationship that God has between man and that Mordecai had with Esther and the way that he took her in and made him her own, made her his own as family, then you begin to see that this, this relationship is so strong, his love is so strong, that it upends a kingdom, that it, it begins to subvert uh, the genealogies of mankind. It undermines uh, systems of oppression. It thwarts empires. Grace secures imperial inheritances bigger than Xerxes could ever provide. And it opens new possibilities for those who are in and those who are out. So that's what he's, that's what God's doing in and through Esther here. So therefore, just to recap, we can trust the past to God's mercy. We can trust the present to God's love. No matter what you and I are going through right now, you can know that God is, in a sense, pacing around your life. He's actively involved to work for good. And then you can trust the future to God's providence. Thirdly, Christians can begin to build that trust. How do you build that trust? I think by looking at the scriptures. But I also think you can do that by remembering your own story. Um, when I think about my own, okay, I'll just, I, I often draw so much confidence by looking at the Bible. I understand God better, understand myself better. But then when I think about my own story, I'm actually able to have confidence now and for the future because I can, I can go back, I can go back to the, uh, I can go back, wait, right to the left, right? And go back and see him at work. And I came, became a Christian in my late 20s. And part of that process was me remembering things like my parents, things like coaches, friends, so on and so forth. But one of the primary ways that I think about or the key moments that I think about is, is when my friend called me and he said, I'm going to get fired tomorrow. Go in and apply for my job. I was an actor at the time. I was so broke. And he, this was after 9-11, and there were no jobs like that, like gig jobs around. And he said, I, they're going to fire me tomorrow. Go in and apply. And I did. And, of course, that was a place that I did not want to be. It was a bar in Soho. I did not want to be there. I hated going in to apply for that job. And most of the days, I did not like going into that place, I thought, what is God doing in my life? I had just become a Christian. This was not my plan. But there would be, <laughs> this sounds so extreme, but I think it's true. There would be no storefront church if I didn't work in that bar. Because it was in that bar that I met my wife, who was one of my regulars. <laughs> This is that kind of church. And we began to talk about God. And she ended up becoming a Christian. And she began talking to me about going to seminary. And so we took a leap of faith and we did just that. Now that bar, providentially, was pretty interesting in New York. There's probably six or seven very 
famous restaurants came out of that bar with the people I was working with. But strangely enough, one church came out of it too. And so Susan and I ended up becoming Christians. We had no, that was not our plan, so on and so forth. Went to seminary, went to go work for a church, so on and so forth. And here we are today. And so when I think about my story and whether God's at work and what am I doing with my life and so on and so forth, yes, I go to the text. I get rooted in this text. And then I think, how has he been at work in my life? And because he was so providentially kind, then I am confident now and I'm confident for the future. You know, when we think about our future so much, we just simply do not know. John Newton, you know, of course, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, right? And Amazing Grace was written by John Newton when he was the, the captain of a slave ship. And over time, he, you know, rejected that life and became a part of the abolitionist movement and brought about the end of slavery in, in England and, and had impact here in the United States. But he wrote that story and by the end, he had a ton of good things to bring before God, so to speak, if, if the, when the time came. But at the end of his life, he said his memory was failing. He basically said, I really only remember two things. I remember that I'm a great sinner, but that Christ is this great Savior. I remember uh, that grace intervened into my life. And, of course, as you and I get older, or I would say this, as Newton got older, he probably forgot those things too. My friend Alan had Alzheimer's and by the end of his life, I knew he was fading because he would remember names and he'd forget names and faces. And, but Jesus was always there. But then at one point, he didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know his relationship to God's people. But the saving grace, the confidence that you and I can have as we move into the unknown like that, is that God never forgets. God never forgets. Why? Because of karma? No. Because of his covenantal commitment to his people. God is committed not just to Mordecai, but to Esther, but to all the world and to you and I. I am confident of this, the Apostle Paul says, that the one who began a good work in you, God, will bring it to completion by the day uh, at the day of, of Christ of Jesus Christ. How do you trust the future in, in light of God's providence? You're not going to remember all the evidences for why for the existence of God. There are too many. But that's okay because God is not primarily about changing our minds. He's about changing our hearts. And maybe as a nod to Esther, we can grow in our confidence because Esther is not just a queen who was deposed, but she actually is a precursor to the great savior of the world. She enacts, in some sense, she does what Jesus does. How, how can I say that better? <laughs> you can trust the God with your story when you can see him assume your own. God used Vashti so that we could do what Xerxes does, and that's remember her and remember what she did. But he didn't just ask us to remember her. He asked us to remember the one to which she points to.
to, to, to his son and what his son did. See, Vashti points us to someone else who also stood against evil, knowing he'd be banished, knowing he'd be ridiculed, knowing he'd be killed, knowing that he'd be forgotten by far too many. And so the call for all of us as we move through this world and try to be good friends and neighbors and to be extenders of mercy, the kind of mercy that we have received is to connect the dots, to gather the evidence of the heart, to see God at work in your world and to experience the mercy that he is uh, transforming your, your past. Thank you, Lord, that he's at work in our present and that he gives you hope for the future. And that is a future that will never end. Death will not stop that. That's the kind of king that we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you keep it real. That you don't give us a hallmark card of ancient flowery language, but you give us the reality of our lives, but with hope. Thank you that you're at work in ways that we that we can uh, see in the story. Lord, by the power of your spirit, will you make it real to us this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.